Hi, it's Paul Ward, and welcome to Farm Talk. I'm very excited today. We are in Fillmore, California, and our guest is Andrea Crawford with Roan Mills Bakery. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Andrea, you are the founder of Roan Mills, but you also call yourself a farmer, miller, baker, and pasta maker. That's right. That is a lot. That's a lot of hats. It's a lot of hats. And I'm a very busy person. You are a very busy person. Um, but uh, my husband and I have Ketcher Canyon Farms together, and Roan Mills Bakery is an outcropping of that. It was an opportunity for us to showcase all the things that we grow and what you do with them. So that's what we do there. We take the products that we raise organically here in Southern California and turn them into delicious food at Roan Mills Bakery. And you started as a backyard gardener. I did years ago, so long ago. Uh, when I was in college, um, I had a class. I went to art school, so I had to come up with something, right, to make a living. Um, and I'd had this uh, class. It was a plein air painting class. And we would spend, you know, afternoons out at Point Reyes doing landscapes and that sort of thing. And it just so happened that everybody in the class was a backyard gardener and the teacher was a master gardener. So besides talking about painting, we talked a lot about gardening, and I knew nothing about it because I was a city person. Uh-huh. Um, but I was very interested, and so they brought me little plants, and they told me what to do, and I happened to have a little piece of a backyard at my little house in Oakland, and I started a garden, and it changed my life. And so you went from just kind of your own backyard, lettuces and tomatoes, and then how did that transition to being a baker? Because you're not Right. And it took a while to get all the way to Baker. But um, back to the very beginning, when I first started gardening in my backyard, um, I realized that I really liked food. Before that, I was not very interested in food. My mother was a terrible cook, and I just survived on peanut butter and apples mostly. Uh, And after I started growing my own food, I was really surprised it actually tasted really good. And so then I got seriously into cooking, and I got you know, all these old gourmet magazines at the flea market for, you know, 10 cents for a whole box full. And I read through them and I cooked everything I could find in there. And after that was done, I actually knew what I was doing. And um, I got a job because I needed a job as a student uh, at a local gourmet deli. And that introduced me to one of the owners of Chez Panisse restaurant Uh who used to come in and get sandwiches. And we became friends, and I said to him, you know, I'm really interested in what you're doing over there. Do you have any job openings? And he said, yes, we do. Come by tomorrow. And I said, what's the job? And he said, oh, you're going to be the sommelier. I didn't even know what that was at the time. I was that innocent and young. Right. And for the folks listening and watching out there, what what is a sommelier? A sommelier is a, is a wine expert, mm-hmm. you know, in a restaurant. And I didn't even drink wine. I wasn't even 21, you know. <laughs> So, but I took him seriously and I went to the gourmet shop, had a little wine shop, and I I took a crash course in wine, which was not nearly enough. And I showed up for my first day of work and they laughed and they said, we don't have a sommelier. He was just pulling my leg. So I was really relieved because like I said, I wasn't even 21. Right. (laughs) And I knew nothing about wine. So it was a good thing that I wasn't going to do that. Right. (laughs) But um, I jumped in with both feet and, you know, was uh, involved with a business that was really just burgeoning and, you know, everyone there was learning new things and trying new things. And so that's where all that started. And sometime after I left there, uh, I um, had a big, beautiful, successful backyard garden in a friend's backyard. And Alice Waters used to go back there all the time to raid the garden. 
and she was just getting famous. She had just finished her first cookbook. And she said, you know, one day I was back there and I just had my first child. And I was trying to think about what I was going to do now. You know, I have a kid. How am I going to make a living? And she shows up. She says, I've just been here so many times this week and I'm so sorry. I hope it's okay. <laughs> and I said, oh, help yourself. I have way too much. I can't possibly eat all this. So she said, well, if you have too much, you can bring it to the restaurant and we'll buy it. Uh -huh. And I looked at her and I thought, that's it. I could have too much every day. Uh -huh. That's what I'm going to do. So uh, I set about uh, creating a project for Chez Panisse Restaurant. And I quickly realized that uh, I couldn't produce everything for the restaurant because they just need so much product, but that I could probably do the little baby lettuces uh -huh. in sufficient quantity because I had developed a technique for growing them intensively. And so Alice donated her backyard, and uh, I set about creating a French intensive garden there for the baby lettuces. And she used them at the restaurant. And she took them with her whenever she went anywhere to give a talk. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of became the hallmark of what they're doing at Chez Panisse, which is basically simple, fresh food. Mm -hmm. you know? So you became a farmer just by chance, just by a conversation that you had with a budding restaurateur who... Well, yeah, I was a serious gardener, though. Mm -hmm. Very serious. I knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what I ended up doing for them was something that most people said would never work, but I knew it would, and it did. Mm -hmm. um, so I was an innovator. Also, you know, it was an organic farm. We uh, collected uh, all the compostables from the restaurant and made compost. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a really cool thing going. It was really, really fun. And I knew that it had legs and I could take it other places, but I didn't really want to do that in the Bay Area because I felt like it would be a drag for Alice if I took this product to every restaurant in the area. Right. Um, so I hadn't really figured out how to resolve that problem until one day I had a conversation with one of my neighbors in Berkeley. And he was a screenwriter and he was a Mr. Mom. And we became friends because my husband at the time was a Mr. Mom, which was something nobody did back in those days. They were the only two in Berkeley. Right. Very progressive city. Right. And they were the first two. Uh, and because his wife was a screenwriter and she was busy and I was doing this farming thing. So uh, they became friends and he had screenwriter friends in L.A. And he said, you know, you should do this in L.A. because money grows on trees in Los Angeles. And the weather is much better. And I thought, well, the weather is better. Mm -hmm. And so I paid him $100. He was an author, actually. He's written several cookbooks. His name is Isaac Cronin. Um, and for $100, back then we used to pass $100. We'd do around. That was a lot of more money back then. Sure. The 70s, you know, <laughs> yeah. or early 80s. Um, and he wrote this letter to Wolfgang for me. And the day that Wolfgang got the letter, he called me. And this was before cell phones. Wow. Right. He called me. I lived on a sailboat in the Berkeley Marina. We had a phone. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> lived on a sailboat because I wanted a different life. Mm -hmm. I didn't want a regular life. Uh, I definitely got that. So he called me. He says, when are you coming? And I said, well, uh, I'm going to need some seed money to get this thing going. And he sent me a check for $2,000. He didn't even know me. He never met me. Wow. Just got your letter. and He got my letter and he kind of knew I was for real because he'd heard about Alice and he knew that she was getting my lettuce. And so that was enough for him. Mm -hmm. And I loved that about him. I thought that was just great, you know, instant deal. Mm -hmm. And so I got the check, moved, sailed down there on the boat. and From Berkeley down to, down to L.A.? Down to Los yeah. And you know how valets will always park the nicest cars in front of the restaurant? Oh, yeah. So yacht clubs are kind of like that, too. If you come down in a vintage boat, you know, they'll give you a little space. 
for that boat. And we had to be tied up to the dock because it was a long boat. Um, so it was a really fun way to kind of enter into Los Angeles. And we had uh, this backyard in Venice. We set it up exactly according to the technique that I developed, which was this French intensive technique. And we set it up for, for Wolfgang. And at the time, the uh, L.A. Times food editor was Ruth Reichel. So it was a long time ago, 85, I think. Uh, and I knew her a little bit because she was a Berkeley person. And I'd known her in the Bay Area just casually. And so she called me up and she said she wanted to do a story. And I said, oh, yeah, sure, that's fine. But, you know, I've been living a counterculture life. And I've been as off the grid as I could possibly be for most of my young adult life. And so I didn't really understand that this was going to be a big thing. Mm -hmm. I just figured it would be a story and that I'd just carry on with my life. But it turned out that um, I was on the cover of the magazine section of the L.A. Times, the Sunday L.A. Times. This was back before it was digital, you know, people got it delivered to their house. (laughs) And uh, I was completely unprepared for the response that I got. Because, you know, Los Angeles is a wonderful place. People have great ideas. There's so many creatives here. People are super generous. Mm-hmm. I didn't find that to be as true in Northern California. Interesting. But when this article came out, I was inundated with mail, snail mail, because remember, this was before email. Yeah. And it was people offering me their backyards. And I'm talking about people who had big backyards because, you know, there's so much open land in Los Angeles. It's an enormous, sprawling city. People in Malibu, people in Beverly Hills, people with great big yards were saying, love what you're doing. Please come and take my yard and do it do it there. And of course, I wow. politely thanked them. And I was not planning to take the, any of them up on it. Right. But it got to be almost a full-time job just dealing with all the response that I got. Yeah. And I had still planned to leave, um, to leave Los Angeles and go back to my situation in Berkeley because I had that all set up and I was comfortable there. And the people that I was friends with were like, yeah, right, uh-huh. They knew I wasn't going to leave. I'm still here. I moved down in 1985 planning to just stay a few weeks, and I'm still here. Wow. And they all knew that would happen because I'd figure it out. This is a place to be, you know. Right. Generous people, wonderful weather. You know, I just, I, I really loved it. And I was on my way home one day from that little garden that I had created for Wolfgang. And I picked up the phone to call my husband to tell him I was on my way home. So you could start dinner because he was still Mr. Mom. Gotcha. You know? yeah. And there was someone on the other end of the phone. You know how that can happen where you pick up the phone and it never rang, but you connected a call? Yeah. And it was this, this guy named Larry Silverton, who's Nancy Silverton's dad. And he had read the article and he was making an offer of his backyard in Encino. And by then I was pretty good at saying thank you, but no thank you. But he was a lawyer mm-hmm. and he had a gift of gab. And he, A, kept me on the phone for an hour, and B, completely charmed me. And so I agreed to go see the property. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't believe it. He was so irresistible. So the very next day, my husband and I drove out there, and we met him. Mm-hmm. And he had this half-acre backyard, and he said, you can just have this. He said, you know, I've got this daughter, Nancy, you know, Nancy Silverton. She's very well-known. Uh, but back then, this was a long time ago, you know, she was working at Maxwell Plum with her then-boyfriend, who became her husband. And Uh, And she and I are roughly the same age. And so he was just, you know, basically treating me like uh, a very good friend, you know. And I just did the math really quick in my head. And I was like, can we stay? And my husband said, sure, you know, because we already had our boat here. So we had a place to live. 
And so we, we, we took him up on it. Uh-huh. And we built this beautiful French intensive uh, garden in his backyard, which still exists, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah. You're you're not still maintaining that garden. Like, no, 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 no. That was just for a couple of years. I sure. We did that. So we did that. He kind of became my mentor. He would have his espresso and come out in the backyard and teach me about business. Mm-hmm. And this guy knew everything about business. It was like plugging into the Oracle or getting an MBA, just standing there listening to him talk about how to make leverage my credit. Credit? I knew nothing about these things, you know, and I learned it all from him. It was just fantastic. And uh, he really helped me get started in Los Angeles as a competent business person. And suggested as a lawyer that I, you know, incorporate and I do all these normal things because, you know, I would be in the food business and I could get sued and on and on and on and and, and uh, taught me a lot of things. So, you know, I had a crash course and quickly turned it into a going concern, I guess is what you'd say, mm-hmm. you know. So you, you, were provi- you were providing produce to upscale restaurants, Wolfgang Park, and you'd been doing Chez Panisse up in the Bay Area. Yeah. And then how did you transition into Baker? Well, that happened much, much later. What we transitioned into first was first we grew an urban farming business and we rented land from the Department of Water and Power. And that's where we got our Kenter Canyon Farms name from. And that was a a Kenter Canyon Farms was the I mean, Kenter Canyon was the name of the power lines, which started in Brentwood and ended in. Uh, Tarzana. So that's not a very sexy name, like named after the power lines that you're farming underneath? Well, actually, it turned out to be a pretty good name because, unbeknownst to me, Kenter Canyon is actually a really upscale, beautiful, secret area in Brentwood. Gotcha. And the people who live there guard it carefully. They do not want everyone to know, but it's a very nice spot. It was a little bit like calling myself Beverly Hills Farms, but I didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. I just took the name off the lease because Larry said I had to have a name Mm -hmm. and I had to incorporate. So it was just a very serendipitous moment, you know, that I chose this name. And uh, we farmed in the city, which was kind of an interesting phase, actually. We did that for a long, long time. We were farming in the city, so we would harvest, we would pack, and deliver to restaurants all in the same day. So you had the Encino Garden? Yeah, and that was seven acres. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's big. Yeah, it was big. That's big. That was seven acres, because it went from the bottom of that property to the top. And the Department of Water and Power loved what we were doing, and so for a time, they weren't charging us for the water. Mm-hmm. They would never do that now. Never. It's <laughs> lucky this... for them to do anything now. Yeah, but they were lovely with us because they had, you know, for a long time, they had a tradition of renting to farmers because that was an orange grove when we took out all the orange trees. Out of the process of taking out the orange trees, we met this guy who had farmland in Agoura Hills, and it was a big farm with water and everything. And so we moved out to Agoura Hills, and we expanded our operation, you know, and that worked pretty well for us. We were doing all the top-end restaurants at the time. In the 80s, there was a lot of nice restaurants. It was the junk bond time, and everyone who had it, you know, every lawyer... Every dentist was investing in a restaurant, and they were kind of popping up like mushrooms everywhere, you know. Right. And so, you know, I learned how to collect my money, which was a big one, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of these people will just order up and then never pay. Right. You know, thanks to Larry, I learned how to be really, to take, you know, every step I needed to, which included sometimes sitting in their lobby with my two kids all day until they paid. Wow. It's like, you know, I'm not the asshole here. You are. Right. Right. Pay your bill. Pay your bill. But then um, my husband uh, thought, you know, it might make more sense for us to actually be out in agricultural areas. And he just started looking. And he's a real estate guy, too. And uh, we bought this ranch. This is our very first purchase. We bought this in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it changed everything because there were a lot of services out here. At that time, we didn't have tra- big tractors. We just had small little, like, you know, 
the third world kind of tractors, very small things. Because we were urban farming, it, there wasn't room for real equipment, you know. Right. But once we came out here, um, you know, we got a crash course in how to actually be a real farmer, not an urban farmer. Right. And you guys are organic. Always been organic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we really are organic. We're certified. Uh, a lot of people today don't do the certification because there's a lot of paperwork involved. And so they say, well, we practice organically, but uh, we're not certified. Right. And that's good enough for some, but it's not good enough for us. Yep. So we're actually certified and we are the real deal. And we are very committed to that and have been all along. I mean, we were organic long before anyone cared about it, you know. And very how did you you transition then from, I mean, you went from urban gardener to now we're Ventura County based and now you're doing all kinds of farmer's markets and you've got a bakery. The bakery, yeah, you keep coming back to the bakery. How did that happen? (laughs) So in, um, in the early, I don't know, like around 2010 or something like that, or maybe 20, I don't know, in there somewhere. Uh, I was doing a lot of baking at home just because I was interested in myself. You know, I was just curious about baking and I wanted good bread. And and uh, I had kids, you know, that I was making lunches for and I wanted them to have nutritious whole grain breads, mm-hmm. which they would trade at school for Lunchables, of course, you know, because they thought <laughs> real food was so boring. Oh That's all we get, right? They wanted the junk um, until they had enough of it. And then they were like, you know, you're right. This is really awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was baking, um, and I was just really deep diving into baking. And, uh, I decided just from the research and the contacts, you know, I joined a group, a meetup group called, uh, LA Bread Bakers. And that was fun because everyone in the meetup group was totally into bread. And like, we could talk all day long about it and nobody would get bored. In the course of meeting these people who were just as into it as I was and taking an even deeper dive into the whole process, I realized that I wanted to mill my own grain. And I had been on a um, European vacation that summer. And I had, uh, in Switzerland, I was in this old part of Switzerland. I found this wonderful mill, a little home-sized mill. It was clad in... uh, in uh, Douglas fir, it was the most beautiful little wooden machine. And it was home-sized, you know, for milling grain at home. So I I got that, um, and I started milling my own flour right before I was starting to bake my bread. So it was like milled in time mm-hmm. for the process. And my bread took a huge leap forward. It was so much better. Because your product was fresh. Well, yeah. So I realized that flour, nobody really thinks about flour. Right. You know, they just think of it as something you take out of a bag and then it's the ingredients you add to the flour that make all the difference. But what I discovered was that there is a difference in flour and flour is completely underrepresented in most typical grocery stores. So a freshly milled whole grain flour has incredible flavor and lots of different kinds of qualities, color, uh, smell, things that I never knew. So that was very exciting for a bread nerd like me. And one day while I was, you know, putting the whole wheat into my mill, I looked at it and I realized these are seeds. Like it took me a long time to make that connection, considering that I am a farmer and all I ever do is think about farming and food. Mm -hmm. But it was at least a year before it tweaked that I could grow this, you know. Interesting. Again, you're still doing this in your kitchen. I was just doing it in my kitchen. It was just for my friends and my family. Yeah. Um, And... uh, I mean, I was baking a lot of bread, actually, and my kids were in private school, so we were, you know, using it for fundraisers and stuff like that. But I wasn't taking it very seriously as a business possibility. And then uh, we decided that we would start growing. And so my oldest son, who had a farming business, he took over that ranch in Agora that I mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. 
And he agreed to uh, plant the crop with a bunch of volunteers from the L.A. Bread Bakers uh, group, uh-huh. the meetup group. And so we had, you know, a fun afternoon out there throwing seed around and, you know, watering it and right. just talking about bread. Uh, and our first crop was a complete failure because it got eaten up by what we thought were deer. But the next year, uh, we we found out that it wasn't deer, it was ground squirrels. And the ground squirrels had been very successful the first year harvesting and stashing all this grain. Right. So the second year, they were really big and fat and very <laughs> sassy. Like, they would come out in the middle of broad daylight, reach up, grab a stalk, pull it down, and start eating. That's and we just look right at you like, right. try and stop me. And it was ridiculous. I mean, they completely, they took the whole crop for two years in a row. So then my husband got involved. He goes, let me show you how to do this. So that year we got professional. We got him involved. And we had a piece of land up in Hollister, you know, which is in Northern California. And it needed to rest because we'd been growing arugula there for a while. And so he planted, um, how big was it? I think it was 30 acres or somewhere around there. And, uh, of course, we had a, you know, fantastic yield. Mm-hmm. We, were, we planted it uh, the day after Thanksgiving. And by the time the field was planted, it started to rain. And it rained really hard for five days. And that was the only water we gave it. We never did anything else to it. Wow. It was dry farmed. Mm-hmm. And it was fabulous. I mean, we had like 80,000 pounds of wheat. Wow. Yeah. That's and that's when we went into business because I was like, what am I going to do with all this? Right. <laughs> I mean, you had, to, you had almost you had too much for yourself at that point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot too much for myself. I mean, there is something really incredible about um, standing in a field of wheat. I mean, it's a primal feeling of you're going to be okay. Right. Because you know you've got food. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never felt anything like that before. You know, we had this truck come in and there was just this river of grain going into the back of this truck. It was amazing. And I looked at him, I'm like, what are we going to do with all this? Uh So that's how we got into the wheat business, you know, so. Interesting. Yeah. And so now you've got 80,000 pounds of... Of grain, yes. So then um, we had to figure out what to do. And, uh, you know, I'm a problem solver. And so um, I started asking around to see if there were any commercial bakeries in L.A. that would rent me oven space. Mm -hmm. And um, I met this great guy, Sal Calderon, who's the uh, executive chef now for um, the Erwan Group. Mm -hmm. And Sal had a heart of gold. His father had been a bakery. He's from New York. He loved what we were doing. So he said, yes, between these hours, you can come in and you can bake. And so I organized with um, the Santa Monica Farmer's Market on Wednesdays to see if they would give us a space. You know, we were already in there for our lettuces and herbs, but this was a new product. Right. And it was all made from stuff from our farm, you know, and was it going to be okay? And they were thrilled. So in, uh, I think, September or October of 2013, we launched in that farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And were you experimenting with different breads at that time? I mean, you're... We were doing a whole wheat sourdough, mm-hmm. and we had like three or four different varieties. We also did a rye bread because we had some rye. But, um, you know, we just had a few products, and I had this wonderful young baker who was trained in San Francisco who now has his own bakery up in the Sacramento area. Um, what is his name? Ken Curran. And his bakery is Kamina now. Mm-hmm. But before then, he was just a young guy looking for adventure. Mm-hmm. And ours was an adventure that he liked. And he baked. And it was a nightmare in that bakery. We would get in there. And it was before the cleaners got there. And it was right before their shift started, like about four hours before their shift started. We had a really narrow window. And he just had to make it work. And he did. Mm-hmm. 
It was amazing. I mean, I would drive down, pick up the bread, take it to the market, sell it, mm-hmm. and we would do Yourself. that. Yeah, I sell. Oh, yeah, I did it. Yeah, I, I had some help at the market, but um, but yeah, it was crazy, but it was fun. You know, we were bringing a nutritious, delicious product to the market, and people loved it. And now you've got Roan Mills and Fillmore, and you're Hustle right. Bustle, and you're at multiple farmers markets. Mm-hmm. So we started in 2013, and we we grew the business. Whole Foods really liked the product, and we were in with them anyway with our lettuces and herbs, and they wanted to bring the bread into the stores. So based on that agreement, which was just a handshake agreement that we made with them, this was before Amazon was a part of it, um, and you could do handshake agreements with Whole Foods. Right. <laughs> so... Um, we had that all this property that we had bought in Fillmore, all these different buildings, and the one that you see now, that's a 6,000-square-foot building. So we set that up to be a wholesale bakery with the idea that we would supply as many of the Southern Pacific stores as we could. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be all of them because even a bakery that size wouldn't be enough for all those stores. They have a lot of stores, and they had more in the pipeline. But we would do what we could, you know, because our goal has always been to be local. And uh, Fillmore required that uh, the f- a third of it be retail. Mm-hmm. So we were only open one day a week for the retail. We assumed, incorrectly, that we wouldn't have any interest in Fillmore. Mm-hmm. But we were completely wrong about that. Farmer's market customers knew what we were doing. And so they would make, like, pilgrimages up from L.A., you know, occasionally. Right. Um, and after, I don't know, a year and a half of trying to make the wholesale thing work, we dropped that because we just couldn't make enough money doing it. You know, nobody wants to pay for bread on the wholesale level. It's just worth nothing. Right. And it was too much hustle and bustle. It was driving my staff nuts. They weren't getting any sleep. We had a 24-hour schedule. It was just too crazy. A lot of bakeries have that, and it's not sustainable. Yeah. So um, now we are focused just only on retail, mm-hmm. and uh, and we no longer have a night shift. So our schedule is, is actually pretty reasonable. My my uh, mixer starts at 4 a.m. It's the earliest start time, and most of them start at 8. Okay. And they work an eight-hour day. Mm-hmm. So everyone can live with that. But before we had, like, you know, crazy start time, 7.30 p.m. to 3.30 in the morning, 10-hour shifts. It was too much. Yeah. So now we, yeah, we've got it dialed back to what people can actually live with. And it's working. You know, we're doing the retail and your and your inventory is is broadened. I mean, you've got pastas. And- mm-hmm. Yeah, we make all that. Yeah, yeah, we make pasta. Uh, we make as much out of flour as you can make. So pasta was a natural, you know, segue for us. And then we have all the products at the farm. So we're making you know sauces for the sauce for the pasta, and we make ravioli, and we have of course sandwiches, and we make all the sauces for that, and. So, you know, it's just like an opportunity for my devotion to food to have an opportunity to be expressed. And we're bringing a very high-level product to people. It's mostly all organic. All the produce and fruit are organic. Mm-hmm. The flour is organic. Um, and it's exciting. You know, people are responding to it. This tastes good, for starters. Sure. So we've tried to keep our pricing uh, accessible so that it's not just like a super expensive place. It's, right. Some people do find that expensive, but I can tell you from what we put into it in terms of labor and ingredients, our pricing is modest. Mm-hmm. You know, it's partly just because we want this business to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we have Ketrakayan Farms that makes it all possible, mm-hmm. you know. And you, for folks that are in Southern California, what, what farmers markets do you branch out to weekly? We are, every weekend we're in the Santa Barbara Saturday market and the Goleta market on Sunday. 
And in Los Angeles, we're at the Wednesday uh, Market in Santa Monica and on Saturday in Santa Monica. And on Sunday, we are in Hollywood and Atwater Village. Okay. So those markets. And then, of course, for Ventura County folks, they could just come out to... They have to come to the bakery. Rowan Mills Bakery. And we're open Wednesday through Saturday, so they have a lot of opportunity to do that. And at the store, there are lots of other things that you can buy that we don't send to farmer's markets for various reasons. Sure. So we opened the store, um, I guess in September, it'll be six years ago. And we are now uh, open uh, four days a week. We're open Wednesday through Saturday from eight until three. Mm -hmm. And we have, uh, when you walk into the store, you kind of see all of the things that we do, which um, basically it's a showcase for what we grow at Kenter Kane Farms. So we have a beautiful produce table. Uh, 90% of what's on that table is from our farms. Mm -hmm. There is stuff from other people's farms. And also we buy some uh, organic commercial stuff from a downtown outfit, like mushrooms and things that we don't grow. Mm -hmm. um, but these are all products that we used in our cooking in the back. And so we make that available to our customers as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's like a little tiny farmer's market, you know. Um, we also buy things specifically for that, like, you know, sometimes, you know, I'll buy melons or something, which we're not actually using in the back, but they're in season. And so we, we have them there. But um then, uh, you know, we have a whole lot of pastries. Pastries are probably uh, the biggest thing that we do now because people love sugar. You know, so we have cookies and we have all kinds of laminated goods, Danish, um, banana bread pudding, um, all these things, uh, which pair nicely with the hot beverage program that we have. You know, we have an espresso machine mm -hmm. and uh, we make a lot of creative drinks um, and also some tea drinks and Right now, we're doing tests for the fall with uh, apple juice and mulling spices. Um, we have incredibly creative uh, baristas at our place. Um, and then we have a whole freezer section where we have things like chicken pot pies and veg vegetarian versions of that made with mushrooms. Uh, we have ravioli, all kinds of sauces for the pastos. Um, this uh, week, I'm making a Tex Cali Max pie that's actually got Fritos in it, like a Frito pie. Uh, which most people think is a little out of character, but Fritos are just made from three ingredients, corn, salt, and, uh, yes, corn, salt, and water. I did not know that. Yeah. As junk food goes. It's one of the better ones. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> not bad. They're a little salty, probably. Right. But um, in Texas, there's this whole thing, you know, you know what a Frito pie is? Like, in its simplest form, they zip open the bag of Fritos, and they put chili, Hormel chili on top with little cheese and some chopped onions, and that's it. A little sour cream, maybe. Right. And that's simplest form. But, of course, you know, it's gone through various permutations. And mine is the California version, which is in a pie shell and um, a little more refined. Very fun. Yeah. That's super fun. Different days, uh, baking different goods, I would assume. I mean, you can't be doing so all, all the time. Yeah. We, we do most of it all the time, actually. I mean, not always the exact same things, but we always have sandwiches and we always have soup in the freezer and we always have pies and quiches. And yeah. And do you have a website that folks can visit? We do. Roundmills.com. And we have a pre-order option there. Oh, you do? Uh-huh. Yeah. You can pre-order, which is a good thing to do if you can't get there till afternoon because we aim to sell out. Okay. So in the late afternoon, it's there's still good stuff, but it might not be what you want. Sure. Yeah. So, so um, at the end of our sales days, uh, we donate leftover product to feed the hungry. Oh. And we're very lucky because in Fillmore we have uh, a group of friars who are donated, who are devoted to, to caring for the sick and poor in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. 
And so they have a lot of uh, opportunities to donate food. And so they come uh, every week and collect leftover bread and they make sure that they need to get it, which makes me happy because it's quality food and we don't want to waste it. So and I also uh, read that you're big into recycling with cellophane wrap that can actually go into the compost pit. Yeah, it's real cellophane and it can be composted. Uh, we use that for the cookies and the granola. Yeah, and that has been getting tricky to get because the company that makes that is called Paxel in Oregon. It's having trouble getting that material. So I don't know if those days are coming to an end or what. Hmm. You'd think it would be getting even bigger, not... not I, I, it's a supply chain issue, and I, I don't know the details, but um, that's a sad little thing that's happening. Sure. We may be losing that little thing, but we've done that for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been trying to you know do a good job of stewardship. Sure. And the farm is regenerative. Uh, yes, that is one of those undefinable terms. Regenerative is being thrown around a lot lately. It really makes my husband very annoyed because regenerative can mean whatever you want it to mean. And people think it's so good. But what we are is we're just very serious stewards of the earth. And, you know, we are actually organic. We do not cheat. And we keep all the paperwork together, which a lot of people don't do because they can't handle the paperwork. Right. Um, and, you know, we recycle as much as we can. Um we do not raise animals on this farm mm-hmm. uh, because of the food safety issues, you know, because we are selling a raw product, salad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to stay in compliance with food safety, we can't do that. And I know regenerative farmers like to have animals. Mm-hmm. So, so we're not going to do that. Makes a natural fertilizer. Right. But that has to be composted. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, we buy the, those inputs from people who um, compost has to be sterilized to be food safe. So we can't do that on the scale that we work. Sure. It would have to be a whole separate business. So we, we purchase those um, those things. Well, we do a lot of green manuring, which, you know, is cover cropping, and then you disc that into the soil and stuff. Mm-hmm. On this farm here, we supply, this is the first farm we bought out in Ventura County, uh, and a lot of uh, the items that we grow uh, are represented here. All the citrus, uh, the berries are behind us here. Um, this is all seasonal stuff, you know. So right now we're harvesting a lot of berries. Some of them we're freezing, so we'll have them for use later in the year. Mm-hmm. In the back uh, of the property, we have a stone fruit orchard, which is mostly harvested by now. But we got a lot of beautiful peaches and apricots from there and plums earlier this year, which are all in our pies now. I would imagine your menus change, right, throughout yeah. the year based on that? Yeah. It, the, the the pies will reflect the season. So we're we're getting into the fall now, and we'll be out of stone fruit shortly. So we do apple year-round, uh, but uh, we'll have pumpkin pies soon, and uh, we'll have uh, pecan pies. That's kind of a winter thing. And then sometimes we do things like lemon meringue in the winter because citrus is a winter crop. Right. So and we do key lime pies in the winter. I'm getting I'm getting hungry. I know. I, I I miss those pies. That's the nice thing about working seasonally is that you really look forward to it when it's there, you know. So the lemon meringue pie is my favorite because I get to use the torch on the meringue and make it all brown. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. um, where do the where do the name Roan Mills come from? Well, Roan Mills, um, Roan is actually a word. It refers to a color breed for horses, but it has nothing to do with that. Um, Roan is a mashup of my name and my husband's name. He's the R O and I'm the A N. Roan. He came up with that. Of course, he's first. R-O. Yes. I said, how about Anro? But he liked Roan better. So, <laughs> so that's where we got the name. And um, that was kind of fun. We we really spent a lot of time trying to think about the name. It's sort of like naming a kid. You know, yeah. you have children, you're throwing names back and forth. And so Roan 
just was the one name we could agree on. And that's where we got it from. And people mispronounce it constantly. Sure, Rowan. Rowan. Right. I know. But then I would have to have another N and an E. Yes. But, you know, my dad was an English major, so I know this. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for the for for you and the and the bakery? I mean you're I mean you've got a lot on your plate. Uh, farmer, biller, baker, pasta maker. Yeah, I think I'm just gonna stop here and keep doing this for a while. Sure. Um I'm uh in the process now of really trying to create um, a sustainable workforce Mm -hmm. because, you know, the restaurant business has just been gutted by COVID and just everything is just so out of whack. And, you know, we're trying to find um, a balance where we can, you know, give people a career and uh, give them hours that are sustainable. And so right now that's my biggest focus. I mean, we have a lot of products and I'm always making new products. and I've got pretty good staff right now that I really value. And so we're hoping to continue doing what we're doing. The only way we can do that is really to cultivate the, a very strong workforce within our community at Roan Mills. And if we can do that, we'll stick around, you know. But um, it's a challenge. It's an incredible challenge finding people who will still work in, in hospitality. Yeah, I mean, the worst is to train somebody and then they leave. Yeah. I mean, we've had a very, very tough time finding people. Most of the people who left the restaurant business probably aren't going to come back, is my guess, you know. And people who've gone to the Culinary Institute, you know, have found the hard way that it's just a lot of hours of work and the compensation, If you, even if you're on a good salary, pretty much dwindles when you put in those long days, day after day after day. So we're trying to find that balance, you know, where we can pay people a substantial uh, living wage and keep their work week to around 40 hours or a little less mm-hmm. and give them a week off paid if they've been with us long enough, you know, just kind of find that place where people feel like they're getting, because um, they're spending their life there, you know, right. a big chunk of it. Right. And so there's a lot of work being done in that area right now, which is, you know, very challenging. Well, it's a good, it's a good worthy cause. It is. Yeah. It is. And I'm enjoying it. And, uh, but, you know, I'm learning it as I go along too, sure. you know. Well, Andrea Crawford, thank you so much for being our guest on this edition of Farm Talk. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. We've loved having you. And of course, we want to thank our sponsor, Opus Escrow. And be sure to tune in next time for the next edition of Farm Talk. Farm Talk.